Hello and welcome to the Psycho Media Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Inspector Hercule Poirot. And together we will be discussing the funny side of psychology. This is going to be somewhat tiresome if I have to spend a lot of time with Poirot. It's nothing to do with the accent, it's just the moustache. It's Movember, come on, just just get over yourself. It's, a, it's an e-tash for the purposes of podcasting. Uh, hello, how's things? Things good? Yeah, uh, oh right, are we asking each other that or the listener? Yeah, you know, I'm here and that's what counts. I think you can speak for them. Uh, okay, we're listening and we love this show so much, it literally is the greatest source of joy in our lives. I'm going all kind of Chris Traeger on it, because that's how I imagine all of our listeners respond to us. Also, that Tim and Ben are like my total joint heroes, and I love them deeply, deeply, and equally. <laughs> in many, many ways. Okay, well... Should we have some real feedback to let's you know, have disprove that with facts? Let's, and I'm going to start, because my piece of real feedback actually feeds into the subject of this week's show... Uh, oh. I went home at the weekend uh, for something which will potentially come up in the what move section and had a very interesting conversation with my dad, uh, who has, I think, heard one episode of the show. Uh, and he was telling me about a work colleague of his who tragically was involved in uh, a rock climbing accident and lost the lower part of one of his legs uh, very recently. And my dad went to visit him in hospital and they had a, a long conversation about various things. And the guy seems to be doing OK. So that's good, I guess. But as a result of this, uh, my dad was asking me, uh, he remembered a long time ago, me telling him about V.S. Ramachandran and his theory of phantom limb syndrome, because this work colleague of his is experiencing phantom limb. Right. And uh, I, you know, I could remember most of the salient details of Ramachandran's theory, but it got me to thinking what uh whether there might be any kind of modern updates to that theory and i was pretty sure we'd covered aspects of ramachandran's work on the show before in fact i think we dedicated a whole episode to him but absolutely i thought this could be an interesting and at least for me topical subject to cover so this week we will be looking at phantom limbs and secondarily the work of the great vs ramachandran and associated literature Yes, absolutely. Uh, so uh, we're going back to one of our heroes. I had been thinking about doing a whole, you know, Heroes of Psychology series, starting with Ramachandran. So this tickles that a little bit. Well, yeah, we do. We do. We do a series of films. Uh, sorry, podcasts about each of the heroes <laughs> of psychology in turn. And then they join together in an as yet unprecedented uh mashup film that's never been attempted by any kind of media conglomerate and then their nearest rivals or our nearest rivals will attempt to do the same thing and almost inevitably not succeed as well due to a fundamental misunderstanding of the intellectual property on their hands i guess it would have to feature like I guess it has take that dc <laughs> i was just trying one, figure out who our rivals were, but uh, two, think about like who their heroes would be, assuming that their heroes were somehow like the counterpoints to ours, so more like supervillains. So you know, like it's the Squire and Cialdini film. You know? <laughs> I don't know if we've identified anyone else as like strictly villainous within the context of the show. Um, I, I think listeners, like... tell us. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that is a thing that we should definitely do. Um, and I was, oh yeah, that was it. So. Um, I was talking to Christina about this before the show and she was saying that she finds it quite weird that we are talking about Ramachandran because 
in a strange way, she kind of thinks of him as hers because apparently she, you know, she, uh, kind of, uh, read up a huge amount of Ramachandran before coming to interview. She's kind of followed him all the way through her psychological career. And in that sense, she kind of feels a, a sense of ownership over him, which is kind of sweet. I think it's nice, but, and I now do feel quite cautious about entering into this episode. That being said, She's also a massive fan of uh, Hercule Poirot, which when you get round to the outro, you will see that this is kind of a potentially bad episode as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> wow, you really you really have made some interesting life choices today, Ben. Well, I've only found out, I've only really considered them in that sense after the fact. But anyway, do we have some more feedback? Uh, yes, firstly, so... You know how I uh, told everyone that I'd fixed the RSS so it meant that you could get all the episodes? Turns out that broke getting any new episodes. Uh So you you get a choice. Old episodes or new episodes? At the moment, I've chosen new episodes. I may have to, like, either continue trawling literally like page 20 of Google looking for an RSS combiner that doesn't break FeedBurner or doesn't break iTunes, or I need to build a new backend for the podcast. And, uh, I mean, you've seen the Franken podcasts, Ben, the back ends on those, not <laughs> pretty. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I mean, I like big back ends and I cannot lie, but, uh... Well, that's the problem. Feedburner doesn't accept a back end that is over 500 <laughs> in size. Um, body so shaming our RSS feed. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> basically it's like in line with the forces of cosmopolitan whereas we we believe in sir rss mix a lot <laughs> except the rss mix is one of the many things that has betrayed me uh, i need real friends to betray me this this would like had know, we thought about stuff. this more this probably would have been quite an in-depth bit that we could have done there yeah but we haven't uh yeah. did you have any more feedback ben yeah, we got an email this week, which is great. I love it when we get emails. I didn't notice we got an email because Tim hid it from me. I didn't deliberately hide it. My computer is lucky to be alive. Well, that's the gospel truth. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this is an email from Brett Harris uh, in Australia uh, with the subject line, Dewey, Shrewy and Dr. Hooey. Excellent subject line, Brett. Uh, he writes, G'day, Tim, and g'day, Ben. Hope all is well for you both. You started with G'day, therefore you get the accent. Tim, you threw down the gauntlet in the last episode and I'm more than happy to take up the challenge. So, here are some Dewey Decimal System puns I came up with over the last few days. Question, how did Walt Disney catalogue his movies? Answer, using the Huey, Dewey and Louie Decimal System. I thought that was very good. I'm going to drop the accent now. It's impairing my comic timing, which wasn't very great to begin with. (laughs) Books on Morning Frosts are catalogued under the Dewey Decimal System. Hang on. Yep. Hang on. Still quite solid. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, to tie together the other great theme of last episode, you can find books about small vicious mammals under the Shrewy Decimal System. Very good, Brett. Very good work indeed. Uh, he continues, Oh, and Ben, you asked for cake a couple of episodes ago. Since I'm not very good at baking and the aforementioned confectionery would not survive being mailed to the UK, here is the best thing I could find to give you the equivalent. And it is a song either by the band Cake called Sheep Go to Heaven or by the band Sheep Go to Heaven called Cake. Which because I think there the... is a band called Cake, isn't there? Almost certainly. But then there's almost certainly a band called Sheep Go to Heaven. Oh, yeah. And if there isn't, there absolutely should be. So, well, um, 
Thank you for that, Brett. Unfortunately, because Tim hid the email from me, I haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, but I will do so directly after the show. Uh, and the final part of his email, now to the, in quotes, comedy part, is over. I also have a subse- suggestion for a future topic. Since Doctor Who is celebrating its 50th anniversary in November, could you please do an episode about the way the brain processes and perceives time? Or, if that is too boring, it isn't, look at studies testing the uh, old saw saying, possibly, that time flies when you're having fun. Anything which is wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey would be appreciated. Thanks again for the podcast, which never fails to ent- entertain and educate. Or What's that word? Edutainment? Yeah, that's the one. Uh, all the best to you and yours, Brett. Well, thank you, Brett. That was awesome. And that is a really good suggestion for a podcast topic that we will almost certainly do in the not-too-far-distant future, because I know that there are studies on it, and they're super interesting. And if you'd want to listen to it now, try a TARDIS. Uh, so I had one last bit of feedback from one of my work colleagues who I had mentioned the show to. I can't think why I would do that to people who I've got to work with on a day-to-day yeah, basis. That's about, but I have I done that, that a couple of times now. Well, there was one thing when I mentioned, you know, the video from Charles, because that's kind of like an impressive feat. Uh, a feat that I had literally zero part in. Um, but yeah, my colleague Luke said that he, he listened to uh, the show and that he enjoyed it, especially like the popcorn study, because he'd listened to episode 83. He said he was a surprised by its length. Um, and also... <laughs> I get that, that all the time. <laughs> well, he's yeah, it, it was kind of twice as large as he was expecting, because... Um, <laughs> Twice as large, twice as long. Because apparently he's expecting like a half-hour show. He's been indoctrinated by like Radio 4 or something. And yes. kind of that he was surprised that it had actual science and jokes in. Well, hey, actual science and jokes, that's what we do. Sometimes more of one than the other. Sometimes uh, both in the same episode. <laughs> apparently. Uh, ben, I am watching the counter ticking away. What move? What move? Well, there was a lot of move this week for me. Um, I was so your diet is not going well. No, not great. Uh, I was struck down by illness uh, last oh, week. No. So that was fun. I then managed to simultaneously um, create for myself an appalling deadline crisis. Uh, oh no! Which resulted in the worst day of my illness being spent trying to write a four thousand word chapter for a book that I said I would do a long time ago and then forgot. Uh, So that was the thing. I saw Thor, which was very good, but we're apparently not talking about that because that would be spoilerific. But we Uh, both agree that we enjoyed it, that it was very kind of spacey. It was, and it was excellent. Uh, Maybe not as good as the first one, but still pretty awesome. Anything that gets Heimdall doing stuff, etc. Absolutely. Uh... (laughs) So yeah, that, that was better. That was the best one so far. Uh, yeah, so that was cool. Um, I went home in the weekend uh, for a, me and Christina to have our birthday presents from my parents, which were vouchers for a skid training session on an airfield in near Harlow in Essex. Uh, this is where you go along and you are instructed in the correct way to deal with skidding in a car. And the way that they do this is they have you in a car which has, like, kind of stabilizer outrigger wheels on wow. uh, outside each wheel, which from inside the car can be controlled to raise up the, the main chassis of the car, either the front wheels or the back wheels or in various configurations, to reduce the grip that the wheels have on the road surface and therefore to kind of 
uh, emulate conditions like two inches of snow or sheet ice or something like that. And wow. this means that you sit, you, you know, me and Christina get in the car and the instructor, a guy called Kenny, who was very good, was there. And he, he kind of explained to us what we we're going to be doing. We do front wheel skids, back wheel skids, emergency stopping and stuff like that. And then he takes us for a little bit of a drive around. And when he, when you engage the, like the, the skid uh, emulator, if you like, it is really noticeable. Like the car just skids like nobody's business. And then yeah. it's like, right in the driver's seat with you let's see do some skidding and oh my god it was so much fun i highly recommend this to anyone partly because it's amazing fun partly because even though you are doing these incredible skids and messing it up and doing like 180s and just going all over the place the the car is extremely stable you're not doing it at very high speeds and there was not a single moment where i didn't feel completely safe and that's thirdly that's good because it is extraordinarily useful and it could save your life. Like the, the idea about them that they, they kind of declare at the beginning is obviously the best thing is prevention. You don't want to get into a situation where you're skidding. But if you do, having been through this experience gives you an increased likelihood that you will react in the correct way as opposed to the incorrect way. And yeah, for 80 or 90 pounds a pop, whatever it was, I would heartily recommend it. There were a, there was like just the two of us basically doing this skid session on one corner of the airfield. And then around the other end, they had people who'd paid like 200 pounds to do a, like a single lap of the circuit in like a sports car that they weren't right. even allowed to drive themselves. And it's just what? like, what we, sports car was it? Even? I know, they were all sorts of them. Uh, like that's rubbish. five or six. And it's like, we, we by far got the best deal. We had like 90 minutes of, doing basically car stunts and you get to go slowly once around a track in a maserati or whatever yeah right. so um that's i just I... want to mention what i've done this week you should do because that. it involves self-promotion and i can't afford to miss it uh but i at least was released in the last week a panel game that i did called battle gods of pod uh <laughs> a very very competitive geek panel game that involves uh just kind of talking nonsense doing just a minute um trying to pitch as many like obscure things as you can in uh one like in two minutes and a quick fire trivia round and my goodness is it tense uh i won't tell you whether i won or whether i lost uh, or whether i drew <laughs> no you can't draw um but yeah i'll stick it in the show notes you should listen to it if if, if you like uh, me being called the c word then you should listen to it <laughs> sounds good to me so is that something that you came up with or were you just part uh, of no it's a part of the geek syndicate network so uh, i was representing my podcast that sounds very cool and now on to the psychology yeah, I wish that I could do belabored segues, but I have lost the art. Uh, so, phantom limbs. Well, Ben's already introduced the topic by actually knowing someone with a phantom limb. Um, and uh, I'm going to be talking about a paper by Schmaltz, Schmaltzel et al. 2013. Surprisingly non-emotionally manipulative, given the first author's name. Uh, shout out to co-author Christina Ragnur for having an awesome Swedish name. Uh, um, so yeah we covered phantom limbs briefly in our Ramachandran episode anyone who was listening at episode 7 and is still here well done for your longevity and possibly patience you know hours no upon hours of solid audio uh, to get here 
I remember episode seven being a quite a good episode, but as Ben said recently of our first episode, it wasn't as bad as you expected. I imagine that's really all we can hope for yeah. most <laughs> of the time for the early episodes. Um, obviously, and the current episodes for that matter. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and some of the more recent ones as well. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know which is our best. I tried to get people to suggest which one was the best one for newcomers to listen to, and no one answered me. Sad face. Um, so. Obviously, whenever we discuss a mental or neurological illness, we are not looking to laugh at the condition so much as explain it whilst telling some jokes. Uh, and I imagine that most people with certain conditions prefer people not to feel that they have to tiptoe around. They'd rather be treated as people. Also, our language is filled with awkward embodied metaphors. So really, should I use the word tiptoe when I'm talking about amputees? I think we're fine, but let us know. Um, so phantom limbs are a weird sensation. Um, phantom pain is a more troubling one. And 50 to 80% of people who have an amputation get phantom pain. So obviously looking for effective novel treatments is important. So in order to understand how to treat phantom pain, we have to know where the phantoms come from. Explore the phantom zone, if you will. Feel phantom limb experiences before Zod. <laughs> we should probably just say, just, just in case, before we start, a phantom limb is when if you have a limb amputated you still feel like the limb is there even though you can see that it's not and sometimes you can feel sensations in that limb sometimes it can be producing pain i.e., phantom pain sometimes it can be kind of sometimes you feel like you can move it around which we'll come to a bit later yeah sometimes um, it can it be paralyzed it can be problematic if the the limb is feels like it's kind of contorted into a painful position or if it is painful because obviously you can't treat a non-existent limb that yeah. is that is what phantom limbs are if any yes yes sorry i didn't include that to know uh yes uh i was going to go i'm going to go through now how they develop in very simple terms but i didn't think to explain what they are um mm. so yeah the principle that the development of phantom limbs relies upon is neuroplasticity so it's probably worth explaining that first before explaining how it specifically leads to phantoms your brain learns by changing the strength of attachments between neurons. Neurons come to represent certain things. They fire in response to certain stimuli. And by the time you're an adult, your sensory areas have a sort of a map in neurons of each bits of your body or your field of vision or the range of audible sounds or indeed places in your vicinity. And similarly, your motor system has a set of programs of known movements. You know, all those cutters that you drilled, each one is a separate network of neurons that fire in sequence. Your memory is a combination of places, times, events, sensations, and those kind of connect sense and motor together. And you can still learn new things because the wiring can change, although actual new neurons don't develop in huge numbers. And the connections change based on sensory and motor information, so you can get rusty if you're not keeping up with a certain activity or subject matter. Obviously, if you have a limb amputated, there's a whole area of the brain that is no longer receiving any sensory or motor input because the muscles and all the little sense in there, genuinely including, for example, the tickle sensor, they're gone. But the brain doesn't just kill off the neurons in that area because, as I've said, they don't get made especially quickly and the brain isn't that wasteful. Uh, in, and indeed, until recently, it was believed that they were never made in adulthood. So what it does, it lets them get rezoned. You know, all those abandoned mills that get turned into flats. Trouble is, they still look like mills and that can be quite charming in the real world. A similar thing happens in the brain. Nearby body areas take over those neurons 
but those neurons are still connected to higher level maps that haven't quite caught up with the whole amputation business. So when you get sensory or motor input to further up the arm, say, which has taken over the neurons of the forearm, it feeds back up the chain and feels like there's an arm still there. And often this leads to pain, especially cramping pain. Now, this can be an uncomfortable topic. And one of the papers I ch chose to not do today was a study of a phantom larynx, because that was too unpleasant for the show. You know, even I have lines. Hey, hey, hey. Um, so this is me uh, simplifying the first few paragraphs of the article. But to be honest, until I'd studied this area, I'd never heard the word somatosensory. And indeed, while doing the module where I learnt about these things, I learnt about brain areas I've never heard of before or since. Uh, the good news about phantom pain in phantom limbs is that the drugs do work, they don't make it worse, and the experience does not involve Richard Ashcroft in any way. <laughs> uh, but always uh, relying on permanently on painkillers, well, it can have, I was going to say side effects, it's a bit of a like technical term when it comes to talking about drugs, it can have problematic consequences. Uh, there's a reason that Frankie Boyle called his show Tramadol Nights. Uh, not that I'm privy to the inside of Frankie Boyle's head, I only work in medium secure uh, environment. <laughs> ah. Uh, <laughs> boom saying you should be in Broadmoor for your thought crime um, I, 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 I I listen to that's, the that's radio. actually the title of his next show <laughs> yeah it could be couldn't it I listened to the Radio 4 adaptation of 1984 starring you know Man Crush Christopher Eccleston this week um, and it was pretty awesome but like I was literally like the second episode which pretty much all set in the Ministry of Love is brutal just like some great radio pain acting Anyway, I believe, though I'm not sure, that when we did explain about phantom limbs in episode 7, or possibly the following Frank podcast, we explained that another means for reducing phantom discomfort was to get someone to put their intact limb into a mirror box. So it appears they have an arm where the phantom limb feels like it is. And that stretching the limb, looking at using mirrors can relieve pain. Apparently, however, this doesn't always work. Probably because phantom pain is not a unitary phenomenon. And I bet we are the first comedy podcast ever to use the phrase unitary phenomenon. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the authors of this paper run a clinic for people with phantom limbs. Anyone who runs a clinic based on visual illusions basically seems to want to come up with new and more elaborate magic tricks. I, I won't make the most obvious dark joke about sawing people in half. I'm just waiting for the smoke therapy to catch up with the mirrors therapy. <laughs> What had previously been found is when acclimatising someone to an artificial hand, touching the hand while touching parts of the stump known to trigger sensation in the phantom limb, helped develop ownership and incorporation of the hand. So what about doing a similar thing with a mirror for people without artificial hands? Thankfully for people and not thankfully for science, these sort of studies don't have many participants. So there was a whole mix, even with the six people involved, for the type of pain, the location of the amputation, the length of their stump and so forth. And what they did was they created a stump map, as it's called, by touching the stump and asking where it felt like the participants were being touched. And they then used multicoloured felt tip pens to mark the points that evoked sensation and marked on the opposite intact hand the part of the hand that felt like it was being touched. I'll include pictures in the show notes so you can see the pretty, pretty colours. Uh, it's quite so, a visual episode this week, so uh, there will be this will be a good episode to have the show notes open while you're listening to it. <laughs> yes, for absolutely. A full experience. Yes, definitely. Um, so uh, these would then be used in the mirror procedure, and they then obviously got them to rate a baseline of their pain, because otherwise you're just messing around with mirrors and touching people in places you've drawn on their body, and that, that's not peer-reviewed science. That's a very specific club that I am never going back to. <laughs> Oddly. Uh, 
it's because of uh, my uh, awkwardness at looking at my torso in mirrors rather than the touching. And, uh, where, where, where were we? Uh, Amsterdam. Wait, no, where were we in terms of the study? <laughs> they got participants <laughs> to... See, place... I thought when you said Amsterdam that that was, like, was going to be some sort of pun in there with am, am, ampu... Ampu... Amputated Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Never mind. Moving on. <laughs> the study is Swedish. Um, so they got uh, participants to place their stump so it was hidden from view behind a mirror, and they put their intact hand where the phantom was currently positioned. And this sort of research gives us a real sense of our subjectivity in the world. The phantom has a specific position. It can be known, it can be imitated, because its reality dwells within one level of one part of the brain, not even completely within the brain. Uh, that's sort of amazing. Not especially funny, but certainly the sort of science that puts your ego in its place a bit. You know, your sensations of the universe, they're coming in through your brain. Just, just saying. So, the participants did a sequence of moving their intact hand and their phantom hand in synchrony, as the traditional mirror treatment involved, and then rested, allowing the pain to return to its original level, as the pain was being monitored throughout. For the stroking condition, the visio-tactile illusion, they got two paintbrushes, mercifully free of paint, having already doodled on these people's limbs, and stroked the points on the intact hand and the stump that were known to evoke that point on the phantom limb. For one of those participants, they hadn't been able to create a map, but as she'd identified the most pain on the palm, they stroked her palm and just the middle of her stump and kind of hoped. Uh, the strokes were in rhythm with one another, always happening simultaneously, which requires an adept experimenter, not like me, who'd probably end up sticking them in your eyes and not even at the same time. Um, and then they would vary the interval of stroking, uh, though the rate remained about one stroke per second. And this meant the sensations weren't predictable. And apparently it's important to be unpredictable when stroking people. I wouldn't know. Finally, they repeated the stroking, but with the mirror covered, so there was no visual feedback. Uh, and they then asked some questions to see how much the participants had gotten into the illusion. So the movement condition did not show a reduction in the levels of pain. Uh, the participants all showed no change or even a slight increase. So clearly, while it's good for some, it's not good for everyone. All but one of the participants, however, showed significant pain relief in the stroking condition. What wasn't controlled, I suppose, was, you know, more random stroking, though the control trial did have stroking without visual feedback. And this control did not show any effect on pain. So it did have to be rhythmic stroking with visual feedback to get the pain relief. Uh, mirrors are very important to the sensations involved in these scenarios. And I'm sure that these findings can be generalized in licentious ways. So when it came to straight before and after ratings, three participants showed no significant change in pain for movement and three showed significant increases in pain. Whereas for stroking, four participants showed a significant decrease. One further participant did not show this, but that was because the technique was so effective it screwed up her later baselines. And the participant whose map could not be created showed no significant pain reaction, highlighting, as ever, the importance of the specificity of touch. Really? Really? That was the bit that you felt the need for the sexy music? Well, I think it's the most... If that is the baseline, then we're going to be pressing that button a lot this week. Oh, yeah. Um... At least during the outro, maybe less so during the actual studies, which, as I think previously it's... mentioned, are more interesting than funny. Yeah, um, I think that it's the um, combination of multiple like colours, at least five, with amputation. Just makes me think of Brian Moser in the first series of Dexter. Um, okay, who... well, good for you. <laughs> I, I think... Different strokes for different folks, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, okay. So this is a study about stroking. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so they didn't analyze the initial and final ratings uh, because six by two data points isn't enough to properly do that. But all but that final participant did show a marked decrease. And for the group, both before and after ratings for each trial and initial final ratings showed a significant effect of stroking and no significant effect of movement in producing pain. As for how involved they got in the illusions for the movement condition, all but one of the participants felt like the hand in the mirror was their phantom limb, and four of them felt like the phantom limb had its own agency, probably detective work, since being invisible is an advantage in that field. Um, for the stroking condition, all participants felt the mirrored hand was theirs, and five of them, the five for which it worked in reducing pain, felt as if the touch was happening on the phantom limb rather than on the stump. It is worth noting that the pain effects were short-lived in all but one of the participants. Uh, all the pain effects, either increased or decreased, lasted a minute at most, save for that one participant, for whom the pain relief lasted for four hours. That is to say, at least 240 times as long as all the rest of the participants. Wow. And so we see more here of how phantoms, they're not a single experience that always works the same way. Uh, so we might suggest that limbs themselves might not always work that way for everyone, you know, or indeed work for everyone. Uh, and for that last participant, the ownership of the mirrored hand stopped as soon as she was stroked on the stump, as the mismatch of experience brought her out of the illusion. And indeed, that is how the, the, she managed to avoid the deception of immortal and inhuman form Darren Brown and lock him in his decaying flesh. Yeah, I got weird all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, turns out when you try and do callbacks, you just have to raise the stakes. That's the problem <laughs> with sequels. Um, <laughs> It's like, this time I'll destroy the whole universe. <laughs> also, I have a weird face mask for some reason. Anyway, as to how it works, essentially, although we call it an illusion, it fits more with what the brain is experiencing. It's more kind of concordant with that. And it resolves some of the confusion and therefore perhaps some of the pain. And they believe that doing more of this therapy than eight one-minute goes has the potential for longer-term relief, as it takes time for those maps of neurons to resolve themselves. Furthermore, this therapy is suitable for those that movement therapy doesn't help, rather than being, you know, just a general therapeutic tool. And there's a difference between clenching and cramping. Uh, for example, you don't cramp a buttock out of embarrassment. Man, you're cramping my buttocks. <laughs> you're clenching my style, mom. <laughs> exactly. I, I said it and then I wanted to take it back. Really oh. can't. It's clenched now. <laughs> also, we're recording this. Goodness me, I hope we are recording this. <laughs> it also informs us about the mechanisms of some other therapies. One that has been used is just visualising moving the phantom. And there was some suggestion that classical mirror therapy just worked on the basis of this, you know, internal motor stimulation. Uh, but this technique reduced pain without any motor involvement. The illusion itself is what has the power to affect a brain whose maps have got confused. So that's kind of cool if, again, yeah, more interesting than funny... Ben, uh, what can you tell us about phantom limbs? Well, um, I, so I should, a uh, slight disclaimer at the beginning, I'm going to cover a little bit of the ground that Tim has already covered, but in a little bit more detail, kind of on the, um, the details of existing explanations for phantom limbs and this uh, and a displaced sensation that you, that you often find in people with phantom limbs. 
So anyway, uh, there are a lot of very strange things about phantom limbs. Obviously, probably the main strange thing is the phenomena itself. The fact that someone can experience sensations in a non-existent limb and can even sometimes exert uh, some degree of motor control over the limb. And my second study that I'll talk about today will have a lot more about that kind of exerted motor control and some of the cool things that you can do with it. However, uh, another strange finding that, as Tim mentioned, Ramachandran talks about in his book Phantoms in the Brain, which we would both heartily recommend you read if you haven't already, if you're in any way interested in this stuff. Uh, One of the other strange things is that physical contact with other areas of amputees' bodies can sometimes elicit sensations in the phantom phantom limb. So not just touching the stump, but also quite weirdly disparate parts of the body. So imagine, for example, someone touching you on the ear and you feeling that sensation in your foot, except you don't have a foot. Uh, That is basically what we're talking about here. Various researchers, including Ramachandran himself, have documented this effect. Um, And in particular, they found that patients who have lost, for example, a hand, often feel sensations in their phantom hand when touched on the, uh, the, let me see, the same side of the body on their face or on their trunk left or so. Now, Ramachandran's proposed explanation of this is kind of fascinating. First of all, uh, we need to know how touch sensations are represented in the brain, which Tim briefly talked about. Basically, the brain uh, areas that register tactile inputs for the body are arranged topographically. So the neurons that respond to sensations on your hand are next to those that respond to sensations on your forearm, which are next to those that respond to sensations for your upper arm, etc., etc., etc. The topographic, this topographic representation of touch in the brain is often called the homunculus, uh, which is Latin for little man. Uh, and if you Google homunculus, you'll see pictures of this very freaky looking little guy with huge hands, huge lips, and huge genitalia. Uh, this is because... The density of touch sensors is much higher in the skin of your hands, lips, and genitalia than other areas than other areas of your body. Your hands, lips, and genitalia are much more sensitive, uh, and consequently, these areas take up much more of the kind of brain real estate for sensory representations. So, how can does I hum- ask a homunculus question? Yes. Does the motor homunculus have large genitalia as well? Uh, no. And it has uh, smaller lips also, I, be- I think. Or no, not much smaller. It's slightly different. Because you need to use them similar. for speech. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there is also a motor homunculus because obviously you have a, a kind of outgoing representation of the, is it afferent signals? No, efferent signals, like outgoing signals from your brain. I was going to say, don't ask me that. That's too neurophys for me. Yeah. Anyway, so there is also a motor homunculus, but for the type, for the purposes of phantom limbs, we're generally talking about the, uh, the tactile or the somatosensory homunculus. So how does the homunculus explain the fact that some amputees experience phantom sensations when touched on, for example, the face? Well, The somatosensory cortex, the brain area responsible for touch sensation, isn't actually itself shaped like a small disturbing man. In fact, it's a strip of brain tissue that runs down the lateral, the outside edge of the parietal lobe. Um, To visualize where it is, imagine you take a, a strip of ribbon 
and you you put it under your chin like you're tying a chin strap and then you stretch it up pull it up over your ears and tie it on top of your head like a bonnet uh, the somatosensory cortex will be sitting roughly below the section of the ribbon starting just above your ears and going up to where the two ends of the ribbon meet on top of your skull huh. now remember we roughly you know depending on where you how far forward or how far back you tie the ribbon now remember we said that the somatosensory inputs are arranged topographically that is true but they are also kind of folded in and on top of each other in order to fit a distinctly non-body shaped, fit into a, like a, a non-body shaped chunk of brain tissue. So, for example, although the neurological representation of the hand is next to the representation for the forearm, it's also, coincidentally, right next to the representation for the face and for the trunk. By the trunk, as I said, I mean the torso, not like an elephant's trunk. Don't worry, humans do not have vestigial mm -hmm. trunks. Uh, although not even like in the brain hidden <laughs> <laughs> although if you consider the somatosensory cortex of an elephant i guess its trunk would probably be pretty close to its uh, uh hands paws hooves what do elephants have although actually come to think of it if an in an elephant's brain its trunk is probably right next to its trunk yeah which is very confusing and probably explains why there weren't any elephant neuroscientists uh, anyway. Well, also because they would spend all of their time focused on a hippocampus that can't actually forget anything. <laughs> yeah, that is... Elephant neurofears. <laughs> I think we've covered literally everything. <laughs> Elephant neuroscience jokes for the win. Okay, back to phantom limbs. Um, so this scrunching up of the technical term of the somatosensory map was used by Ramachandran to explain this kind of mislocalization of touch sensations from the face to the phantom hands of amputees. Um, so because the neurological representation of the face is right next to the hand, you get this kind of overspill. And this also ties into what Tim was talking, saying about neuroplasticity. Uh, the, hu uh, the human brain is highly plastic. When damaged, it's the brain is shown the capacity to basically repurpose areas of cortex that uh, to take over from lost tissue. Um, it's also been found that when the source of a sensory input to a particular brain area is lost, those cells that used to code for it are then take, can then be taken over by neighboring areas so that they, kind of the, the raw materials of the brain are still in use. They're not being wasted. For example, uh, so one of the ways this has been demonstrated is in mice. Uh, they have a similar kind of topographic representation of the sense data from their whiskers. So if you remove one whisker from a mouse the cells in the mouse's brain that used to code for that whisker will be repurposed to represent sensations for nearby remaining whiskers so in the case of phantom limb patients what ramachandran thinks is that essentially the same thing is happening just with a kind of a weird psychological twist uh, for example in the case of someone who's lost their hand that sudden loss of sense data from that location means that the cells in the patient's somatosensory cortex that used to code for the hand will gradually be repurposed by neighboring areas of this homunculus, for example, the forearm, the face, or the trunk. However, because for some strange reason the brain hasn't quite adjusted to the absence of the hand, actual physical touch on the face, the trunk, or the forearm might will often be experienced as sensations on the phantom hand. Uh, 
Ramachandran also suggests that this cortical remapping process may explain why amputees sometimes feel like their phantom limb is actually like inside their stump uh, rather than sitting on the end of it where it used to be. Uh, again, what's happening there, according to Ramachandran, is that the cells that used to code for the missing hand or the foot are now being gradually remapped to the closest remaining parts of the limb. And you get this kind of subjective confusion in your brain as to what exactly those those sensory inputs mean cool so that's all extremely weird and interesting uh not just in the effects themselves but also in terms of ramachandran's proposed explanation however as i said way back at the beginning for this podcast i kind of wanted to find out if there'd been any developments in the understanding of how phantom sensations work since ramachandran's book and in fact, what I found was that there has actually emerged some evidence that kind of undermines the notion that these phantom sensations re- result from the misappropriation of tactile inputs, basically kind of undermining Ramachandran's theory. Uh, in particular, I found that a paper by Connect, spelt K-N-E-C-H-T, uh, et al., where they not only induced these so-called referred sensations, but they also used brain imaging to match those sensations to remapped areas of cortical activity so they got eight male upper extremity amputees so people who'd lost their hands or arms and they scanned them using a biomagnetometer which as far as i can tell is just another name for meg machine um as we i'm sure have discussed before uh, an meg machine is a kind of scanner that uses sensors called squids uh, or superconducting quantum interface interference devices Uh, which is a very, very cool name and a very cool acronym for an extremely cool piece of technology because they are super cooled. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Are we ever going to get tired of this, you know, low temperature physics is cool jokes? (laughs) (laughs) No, because it is. It just genuinely is. Uh, So, yeah, they use these squids to measure tiny fluctuations in the magnetic fields emitted by the brain, you know, uh, neurons are basically just like little electric wires, if you like. And you know that when you have electric current moving through, uh, like a coil, you, it generates uh, a magnetic field. And basically an MEG scanner just is is sensitive enough because of the, uh, superconducting nature of its little sensors, these little squids, it's sensitive enough to detect, fluctuations in this magnetic field which is really really good and also very expensive anyway connect and colleagues measured the somatosensory brain activity in their eight amputees whilst attempting to induce referred sensations in their phantom limbs so sensations caused by poking parts of the body that weren't the stump yeah. They applied four different modalities of touch to various points all across the body. Uh, specifically, they they listed basic touch by just using a cotton bud. They did vibration using a tuning fork, uh, pain just using a pin prick, and heat using a forty degree thermode, just a little heat pad. Now, in all but one subject, they managed to elicit spontaneous referred sensations in the phantom limb even though they never actually told the participants that they were expecting to feel something there, which is quite important because demand characteristics can be a big confound in these kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would ask how, like, when you are a phantom limb patient, how many experiments do you get involved in? Anyone with a rare condition, 
Yeah. He's going to get prodded. It's arguable. But um, even yeah. so, I think you'd, it's still... We'd have to look at... Uh, so in the in their method section, they write all subjects had phantom limb sensation, but were unaware of the phenomenon of referred sensations from stimulation of intact portions of the body. So okay, well that's good. Base, then. base covered in that regard. Yeah. Um, however, uh, contrary to what, so they did, they did, they managed to elicit these kind of referred sensations. They poked them on the the face or the the torso and the patients spontaneously said that they experienced sensation in their phantom limbs. However, contrary to what you'd expect from Ramachandran's cortical remapping hypothesis, they were able to produce these referred sensations from points on both sides of the body. So when Ramachandran demonstrated this originally, he he just found that, uh, you know, touching someone on their left cheek could produce sensation in a, a missing left hand a, a phantom left hand yeah however what connect uh, et al found that it they could elicit sensations in a left hand from both the right and the left cheek now this is a bit of a problem because if the cortical representation the cortical representation of the left hand is close to the cortical representation of the left side of the face specifically on the right somatosensory cortex because remember representation of the body is contralateral in the brain oh yeah so there's basically an entire brain's worth of tissue between the representation for the left hand and the right hand they're on literally on opposite sides of the brain so it's pretty improbable to suggest that any kind of remapping of the kind that Ramachandran talks about would be occurring across brain hemispheres. That just just seems improbable. Um, Can I suggest a way in which it might be? Go on. Well, so um, what if your respective maps for everything are connected via the corpus callosum via white matter because the idea that hands might need to communicate with each other, etc., might exist. So you yeah. get a signal into your, um, okay, so your right brain that's come from the left side of your body, it then sh- kind of shoots through, obviously weakened, yeah. because it's the idea of, all through a top level, a higher level bit, mm. I'm, I'm just trying to stick up for Ramachandran, I guess. No, I, I so uh, I would just like to say that I don't think this study like it it doesn't contradict his theory but it suggests that there may be more to it than the quite the relatively simplistic explanation that ramachandran gives uh yeah absolutely a a, a large amount of what ramachandran says is probably still correct um but you know I'll, i'll get on to that anyway yeah i think that is perfectly plausible that there there may be a kind of um, proliferation across the corpus callosum between hemispheres, which could explain it. Uh, but even that in itself is not, that is a more complex model than what the one that Ramachandran proposes um, and something which clearly needs to be investigated. So anyway, they found that th- this kind of contra and ipsilateral generation of these referred sensations. Um, they also found that the type of touch sensation, the modality of the um, the touch itself 
rarely actually matched the kind of touch sensation that the participants experienced in their phantom limbs. So, for example, if the participant was poked with a pin or like vibrated with a tuning fork, they rarely felt pain or vibration in their phantom limb. They would often feel just like a sort of tingling sensation. Uh, So that, you know, adds another level of complexity to the rematch. It suggests that it, it... it's not it's it's kind of not within the same modality of touch because you do have different uh sense cells in your skin to code for vibration pain temperature basic touch it's so if pain doesn't remap then maybe that's why you get lots of pain in your phantom limb because it's just like some maxed out signal or something well, maybe, but the authors actually find yet more interesting findings. Okay, speak specifically. I shouldn't to them. The the concept of phantom pain. Um, basically, using the uh, imaging data, they were able to determine the extent of cortical reorganization that had occurred in any given patient by comparing the like the center of acti- of brain activity for, say touch on the left-hand side of a participant's face to touch on the right-hand side of the face. Um, If, say, the participant had lost their left hand, then the image results showed that the center of activity for facial sensations would be shifted in the right hemisphere, i.e. the hemisphere coding for the hand. This is really difficult to get your head around just explaining it in words. So I'm going to put a a diagram in the show notes to explain it. Um, Basically, the center of activity in the side of the brain connected to the amputated limb shifted towards the location in somatosensory cortex normally associated with that lost limb. So the left cheek area of the brain shifted towards the what used to be the left hand area of the brain but you know now wasn't because there wasn't any hand so it's kind of like the average point imagine you've got two areas you've got the cheek area and the the foot area if you touch the cheek the cheek area activates if you touch the foot the foot area activates you lose your foot so those cells in the foot area are now not doing anything so the two uh, sections combine to become one whole section the like the midpoint of that section will shift towards where the foot used to be it's now in the center of the two again yeah. sorry it's, it's quite difficult to express this in words but basically that's what they found happened uh, in these amputees so there was a mismatch in the between for example the location of the cheek in left somatosensory cortex versus right somatosensory cortex, depending on which hand was lost. All that is kind of interesting, methodologically speaking. However, for the, uh, in the interest of phantom pain, what they found was a very strong correlation between the uh, extent of remapping that occurred and the likelihood that that part, that patient would experience phantom pain now they only had eight participants yeah the correlation was very strong it was like 0.89 and it was statistically significant but that is still a you know dramatically weak sample size however this is 
perhaps an early indication that maybe part of the aspect of phantom pain is actually just as kind of a byproduct of the remapping process itself such that okay. if you're if you've experienced more remapping you're more likely to have experienced pain and they actually also linked uh, i can't remember the details of this finding but they also linked um induced pain sensations to levels of cortical remapping as well okay so that's kind of very interesting uh so yeah um as i said these are all very small sample sizes but then again you know ramachandran's original results were only on small numbers of people this is a a real problem with these kind of studies we're in the world of case studies really to be honest yeah um and possibly in my second study i'll talk about possible solutions to that but anyway if there's anything to be concluded from all of this other than the fact that phantom limbs and phantom sensations are amazing and weird it's that although ramachandran's explanation is very neat and very clever it's probably a little bit too simplistic given the havoc that limb loss plays on one somatosensory representations cortical cortical remapping definitely does occur and referred sensations definitely can happen. But it seems like the link between those two phenomena is maybe not quite as straightforward as Ramachandran originally suggested. There we go. End of study. Cool. I think, yeah, what we're learning about phantom limbs, heterogeneous, complex and rare phenomenon. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like it's like any kind of um, neuropsychology, the study of basically brain damage or this isn't brain damage but it's brain related damage the problem with this is that in humans you never are able to control the extent and the location of this damage so yeah you know all all these amputees are going to have different extents of amputation and all that kind of thing different you know how clean the limb was amputated that kind of thing so yeah because they are frequently from accidents i think in the case i described five of the patients had had tragic accidents and one of them had had to have it amputated because of a tumor yeah and this so only this one study of them was really seven, had like eight uh who'd been in accidents so yeah it's all it's all right you know heterogeneous yeah anyway i'm now going to stride manfully on with the second study so uh most people who haven't suffered severe disruption to their somatosensory representations probably feel like their sense of their own physical body is pretty stable. You know, we we know where all our limbs are most of the time. We know how big they are. Speak for yourself. Yes. Well, you know what? I I decided I wouldn't make a joke about your, you know, actual genuine psychological condition this week. <laughs> I, I don't know why. Maybe I'm just feeling more sensitive this this episode. Anyway, yeah. So, you, mostly, we know where all our limbs are. We know how big they are. We know if they're touching each other. But it turns out it's actually quite easy to trick your brain into misrepresenting your physical state. Reading about this in this paper, I was um, it brought to mind that trick that you can do if you if you get someone to place... If you hold your hands out in front of you like you're holding a box and you get someone to place their hands on the outside of your hands, and then you push outwards against their against them for, like, a minute, and then they yeah. let go of your hands, and it feels like you're holding a big bubble between your yeah. hands. 
that is kind of, I guess, a low-level version of what we're talking about here, tricking your brain into misrepresenting the kind of physical inputs from your body. Um, and in this paper I'm going to talk about, the authors give an example, a more extreme example of a study that uh, did this, uh, They, in which they blindfolded participants and asked them to place their palms against their, uh, the palm of their hand against their forehead. And while they were doing this, they uh, vibrated the tendon in the elbow that controls elbow extension around 70 hertz. And what this produced in the participants was the sensation that their hand was passing through their face and into their head because the, you know, the vibration on the tendon was uh, misrepresented as its contraction. So they felt like their elbow was you know, contracting, which was resolved in the brain as, oh, well, I guess my hand must be being pushed through my face and into my skull, which is really cool. And you can all try this at home with a willing partner. All you need is a blindfold and something that vibrates at around 70 hertz. Thankfully, it turns out there are several websites which can provide both of these items, often in useful bundles and a variety of sizes and colors links in the description. Uh, I, I Are you going to ruin our show notes? <laughs> Put it on the red button. I actually hertz. Don't... I mean, seventy hertz isn't that much. It's just like one and a little bit, two and a little bit, three and a little bit, four and a little bit. Oh well, maybe you can't then. Oh wait, I, no, it's not what am I talking about? I was doing that per minute. That's like yeah. one hertz. Oh, I'm so. I don't know. Cool. <laughs> I don't know how easy this would be, and I don't really want to suggest that people actually go out and do it for the fear that they might seriously damage their tendons. I thought you might be able to do it with like an electric toothbrush oh. or a vibrator, but you know, either way, it's a back uh, massager, Ben. They're called back <laughs> massages. <laughs> I was just trying to look up if I could just find 70 Hertz to play online, uh, but apparently there's a like a bass track called I Bet You Can't Play 70 Hertz, so that kind of causes a problem. Okay, here we go, here we go, I think we're getting something here. Wow, I do feel like my hand is being jammed into my face. I can hear something really quietly in the background. Yeah, it's oh, a well. hum. <laughs> yeah, so... Sorry, anyway, um, you my were hands ruining my, my show notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, moving on from that. Th this kind of experiment raises the intriguing question of just how limited our body image is by physical reality. Um, and its results, as well as phenomena like phantom limb syndrome, certainly seem to suggest that as far as our mental representations are concerned, we're pretty much in the matrix you know, we, we are psychologically yeah. bound to a set of limitations from which it, but those limitations, it's entirely possible to shake them free given the right pill or amputation or a vibrator. Um, man, that scene could have played out really differently. Anyway. <laughs> I don't want to see that version. <laughs> Just because anyway. Keanu Reeves acting is not of the standard required of those sort of movies. Boom! And Lawrence Fishburne might drop his pince-nez. Anyway, the problem with trying to test the limits of body image is kind of self-evident. It's all because it's basically all in our minds it, and introspection is pretty unreliable. You know, asking someone what they're thinking and it's very difficult to get participants to try and break the boundaries of physical representations without just telling them what you want them to do, which as I mentioned before, causes a major issue with demand characteristics. However, 
In this paper, paper uh, Moseley and Brugger attempted some tasks. Uh, they adapted some tasks from the field of mental imagery and gave them to amputees who had been trained to try to move their phantom limbs in physically impossible ways. So in the training phase, they got seven uh, upper limb amputees, arm amputees, um, and trained them to move their phantom hands, in this case, through a series of physically impossible motions. Basically, rotations of the hand which weren't kind of um, anchored at the wrist or were anchored in a different way. Uh, Again, I can put uh, images from the show notes in there to show you. Uh, images in the show notes to kind of try and explain this further it doesn't matter really specifically what the motions were to be honest just the fact that they were physically impossible for someone with a a real hand Uh, interestingly they found that during the training uh, most of the participants reported that at least in the initial stages they felt like the mental image of the hand that they were trying to rotate wasn't their own it was just like a sort of uh, sort of spectral hand floating in mid-air, mid-air that they were trying to rotate through me- mental imagery. However, after a lot of practice, four of the seven participants reported that the impossibly moving hand had actually merged with their own body image and replaced their phantom limb. So essentially their phantom hand was now able to perform these motions. Also, Really interestingly, all the all of these successful participants reported that they felt as if they developed a new phantom wrist joint to allow for the new movement. So it wasn't just that the oh, hands were their new phantom limb was floating around, but they'd actually their phantom bone structure had altered into kind of a different kind of joint. One of them said that they felt like they had something more like a shoulder joint on the end of their uh, connecting their phantom hand to their arm. Uh, a lot. several of them reported that although they were now able to make this physically impossible motion relatively easily, they now found it very difficult to move their phantom hand in a more normal way due to the shape of their new phantom wrist joint. And one participant reported that he actually experienced feelings of fatigue in his phantom hand if he practiced the new movements too much. So, I mean, that in itself is just fascinating the extent to which that's possible. But then they went on to do these motor and mental imagery tasks. Um, once they'd been trained, the four successful participants were given two motor imagery tasks. In the first one, they were presented with pictures of human hands and asked to determine as quickly as possible whether the image they were presented was of a left or a right hand. Now, when you give this task to non-amputees, um, the results show that people are... <coughs> excuse me, much quicker at responding when the hand is shown in a physically plausible position. Um, Furthermore, what you find is that the participants' reaction times uh, strongly positively correlate with the length of time it would take them to move their hand into the displayed position. So, you know, if if it's in a physically plausible but quite extreme position, the image, it'll take them longer to respond, basically because they have to kind of mentally imagine rotating their own hand yeah. to that position so that was the first task in the second task uh the participants were shown two alternating images static images of a hand uh in two different positions and the those images re- represent an impossible movement 
given the uh, time delay between the two images. So if the images are taken as like two frames of an animation, it would be impossible to move your hand th through that many degrees of motion in that time. Okay. The standard finding here is that uh, uh, the participants are asked to kind of state, uh, respond with the path that the hand would have moved through. Did they the use GIFs? That's what I really uh, I guess, want to know. Is, like, is there a Tumblr for this? <laughs> probably would be. I mean, we could create our own. Um, so the standard finding is that participants will report the impossible movement um, right up until the point where the time delay between the images it is, becomes long enough for the hand to actually follow like a longer physically plausible path. Okay. At which point that becomes their preferred response. So... Before training, all the amputees showed the normal patterns of responses to both of these tasks. However, after training, the participants who'd successfully learned to make impossible movements with their phantom hands showed increased reaction times on the first task for images of hands in impossible positions that matched their new abilities. And uh, th But this was only if the image was of the same hand, you know, the, say yeah. they had a phantom left hand, it would have to be a left hand in the picture. Um, on the second task, there, the participants showed the normal pattern of responses unless the hand was on the same side as their phantom, in which case they always preferred the impossible motion path, even at long latencies. Okay. So it, basically there, the implication of this is that thanks to basically re-altering re their physical, their mental representation of their physical body, they that had a strong a clear knock-on effect to the way that they mentally represent motion and movement through space the two processes seem to be inextricably linked wow and so yeah apart from the basic coolness of these findings and the fact that the four participants had essentially been turned into mental imagery based superheroes what is particularly about this studying is yeah like I said, that the change in their internal model of motor action was only possible because their, in quotes, physical state of the phantom limb had been altered and internalized as part of the participant's overall body image, which absolutely supports this idea that our internal representations of body and motion are inextricably linked. What would be really cool to see is whether it's possible to create similar effects in non-amputees the reason for that why these authors chose to test amputees is because they already possess body parts that can break the laws of physics, at least as far as their mental representations are concerned. You know, according to their mental representations, they genuinely do have a phantom hand. And that phantom hand, by the evidence of this study, can do things that a normal hand can't. What I was wondering is, you know, going back to that study at the beginning where they got participants to feel like they were pushing their hand through their head, I wonder if you could induce that kind of physics-breaking sensation long enough to then carry out, like, these kind of uh, mental rotation tasks or something like that. I think it would be very tricky to set up a situation where that would work, but it would be really cool to try. And, you know, on a practical day-to-day -day level, I'd like to think that it's possible for me to trick my own body into feeling like I have antlers or a prehensile tail or maybe just a really, really big hat. Okay. So you want to, you want to, yeah, you want to mess with your body map 
for your own amusement. I was thinking, yeah, because it doesn't matter to... that other people can't like, see it. Okay, so I have got a question now. Now I think about it. What happens when you put your phantom limb in stuff? So you talk about pushing it in through your head. Like, can you just no clip? Essentially, I don't know. That's a I've, really interesting I've question. Just really I bet it's just occurred to me to ask, uh, possibly because I've been thinking about the outro, and I realised no one ever seems to ask that question. Where does the phantom limb go when it goes through things? Like, is it ghostly and you perceive it going through something? Or does your brain just go, nope, too confusing, not thinking about it, not looking, not looking. I imagine the latter, because it will just confabulate. Just like, well, it didn't go through the thing. I was putting my hand here, probably, based on the, you know, the right brain work that Ramachandran's done previously. I get, I mean, I guess it... it Again, it's probably very heterogeneous. Different participants yeah, probably can do sure. different things with it. I mean, the fact that people can have phantom limbs that are inside their body suggests that there is, you know, that it's possible for those contradictory uh, kind of inputs to coexist. So you can have, you can be in a physical situation that is contradictory. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's the case that if they are external phantom limbs that they just you know like uh, if i if i put my hand up against the wall i can't make myself push my hand through the wall maybe it, that kind of remains like if they feel like they're pushing their phantom limb up against the wall they might not you know feel like they can push it in. yeah but where is that sensory input coming from if it's not referred sensation yeah it's a very yeah, interesting it's just question. like it's just like the position data rather than the actual proprioception and somatic sensory anyway yeah i know you can't answer these questions but they're interesting to throw out there at least absolutely okay so yeah that's uh, that's pretty much it it uh yeah i thought that was a very cool study yeah absolutely okay let's draw some conclusions about phantom limbs which was the singular topic for this episode yes they are super super interesting uh but quite heterogeneous and yeah. we don't really understand them fully yet don't be Certainly. racist against phantom limbs. They're not all the same, just like although they appear the same, being invisible. Yes, I guess, maybe. Um, yeah, um, maybe the uh, kind of somatosensory remapping and uh, referred sensation hypothesis that Ramachandran put forward isn't quite as straightforward as he originally made it out to be, but certainly the components of it still there. Yeah, and you can use that as a basis for various types of therapy, some of which help some people and some of which help others, but sometimes you can't, you know, you have to figure out what works for what person. Absolutely. Although it would be interesting to see if, uh, although, you know, making generalizations about the nature of phantom is quite difficult, if there were any way to kind of maybe categorize which kinds of treatment work for which kinds of limbs you know whether the, the you know the amount of remapping that's gone on maybe makes certain kinds of treatment work better for certain yeah well given areas. it's related to types of pain and types of pain related mm. to effective treatment you can kind of suggest that it would let's oh, go sure. do it let's start a lab <laughs> for neuropsychiatry that's a thing that both of us could possibly do but that would be pretty damn interesting uh also like the principles at least that apply to phantom limbs and then specifically their link between um body rep body image representations and body motion representations are a super interesting and people with phantom limbs have the potential to become mental imagery based superheroes and b that uh entirely applicable although much more difficult to induce in non-amputees yeah and i would like a really big hat or antlers 
Yeah, but only in your brain. Probably <laughs> brain is antlers. Easy, probably is easier to get, like, just antler grafts. Just regular antlers. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, you know, they wouldn't be... Like, do antlers have sensory stuff in them? I don't think so. I would imagine I mean, it'd be kind of painful if they did. Because they're like... They're like... Yeah, no, they're... Because they're, they're... They're like... Sim- like keratin stuff, aren't they? Yeah, and who's Similar like, to hair. Uh, the hoof... The hoof of a horse doesn't have sensation. It's just the soft pad in the middle that has sensation. Okay, so they're only going to feel feedback when it's just at the base, just like when I pull the hair, basically. I'm just thinking of the clashing antlers. Anyway... That's not a conclusion topic. I think they're kind of... Are they kind of embedded in the skull? I... Oh, yeah, um, yeah, because you get this kind of skull antlers, like, on the front of some metal albums and that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We say goodbye well, that, to our listeners. That answers that question. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you found this as interesting to listen to as we did to research it. Uh, we will doubtless return to Ramachandran at some point in the future, possibly in the Psychological Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe <laughs> consider the outro to this episode as the post credit sting to the Ramachandran <laughs> movie, <laughs> implying yeah. things to come. By which I mean, don't assume that because it isn't. <laughs> it's in no way related to the Avengers. Uh, yeah. Uh, but if you, fa- you know, want to uh, ask us anything or make any suggestions for future episodes, if by some chance any of you happen to have phantom limbs and can speak to your own experience would be fascinated to hear about it um i sincerely hope that we have managed to get through the episode without being offensive in any way uh but yeah you can contact us uh by email you can email us at uh, psychomediapodcast at gmail.com uh you can use the facebook facebook.com slash psychomedia uh you can find us on uh, twitter at team psychomedia and I think the last one is the WordPress, psychomedia.wordpress.com. Yes. Good. I was paying enough attention to remember which ones you've done. <laughs> it took me a moment. It really did. But uh, we should, should have uh, lots and lots of show notes this week, which may assist in the understanding of some of the more niggly bits with uh, like cortical remappings and stuff like that. Also, there'll be pictures of homunculuses. Yep. And I promise... Nothing too creepy. Mm. Maybe. <laughs> because mm. it all went in the Franken podcast. Remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, until next time, goodbye. bye bye And now, join us for another mystifying tale of the great Belgian detective and ballpoint pen, Hercule Barrow, in the case of the Phantom Limb. Keep back there! Keep back there! This is an active crime scene! Ah, Monsieur Barrow, I'm so glad you could come! Ah, bonsoir, Inspector Rosbif. Mon plaisir, of course. You know I always come when you arouse my deductive juices. Eh, maintenant, what have we here? Well, as you can see, the thief appears to have entered through the ceiling vent, removed the glass case without setting off the pressure sensors, and removed the ambassador's diamonds before escaping by means unknown. Hmm. I take it you have no leads? Not as yet, but we know we are dealing with a master criminal. The thief left no traces or evidence of any kind, so we've got very little to go on.
Ah, well, mon petit inspector, that is why you have called me Hercule Barrow. From a brief observation of the crime scene, I am certain that I can give you a little something to go on. For you see, this is clearly the work of the master thief known as Le Phantom. <gasps> Le Phantom? But didn't you catch him already? Please, let me finish. This is clearly the work of the other master thief, Le Phantom Lim. Who? I've never heard of him. The Phantom Lim has eluded me on numerous occasions. He lost his right hand during the war, but that has not stopped him becoming the most dangerous thief in all of Europe. But how could you tell it was this uh, Phantom Lim? Why, mon petit chou-fleur, by his trademark calling card. Observe, right where the pedestal where the diamond was sitting, a white glove from the hand of the thief himself. But, but there's nothing there. Aha, exactly, mon petit boeuf. The phantom limb only has one hand, so he thinks he is leaving behind a glove. But it is, in fact, a phantom glove. Well, then I don't know how that helps us. He didn't leave anything behind at all, really. Ah, mon petit cochon dingue, that is why you are still an inspector, and I am the one wearing the floppy hat and this ridiculous peep. Now, shut your pretty mouth and observe my highly developed detective skills at work. First, we place a small box over the diamond pedestal, so. Then we insert this small mirror into the box, so that the absence of a glove is reflected in the image. Thus, you will observe, it now appears that we have not one, but two phantom gloves. Uh, I don't see anything. Exactement. Now, for la science. First, I cover the box on the left side, so we cannot see the original phantom glove. Then I place my own hands into each side of the box. Now, mon petit pomplemousse, if you could be so kind as to reach into my trouser poche and pass me the left-hand white silk glove that I took the liberty of bringing with me to this crime scene. There we go. Now, place the glove onto my left hand in the box. There we go. Now, you will observe in the mirror that there it appears that I have gloves on both my hands. Yes, but I still don't see how this helps us ah, catch the thief. Ah, mon petit orcibu. Try to utilize those little grey cells of yours. What, what little grey cells? You mean the ones down the station? Ah, no, you adorable idiot. The little grey cells in your head. Engage your little brain and observe. I remove both my hands from the box. Et voila! Le gasp! Two gloves? Mais of course, mon petit grillepin. And not just any glove, but in fact, the very phantom glove utilized by the phantom limb on his very own phantom hand to steal the ambassador's shiny baubles. But, but, that makes literally no sense. Ah, uh, maybe not to you, mon petit amuse-bouche, but to the scientific mind of a detective like myself, such marvels are all in a day's travail. Maintenant! Come, let us return to my apartment, that I may ruminate further on the actions of this most nefarious of criminals. Ah! Ow! What was that? What's the matter? Did you tread on something? Ah, oh, yes, I think I did. Aha! 
Well, mon petit boulangerie, I'm pleased to report that I have solved the mystoire of the location of the missing ambassador's diamonds. Mon dieu! Where are they? Right here, stuck in my shoe. It would appear that the phantom limb also suffers from the condition known as anosognosia. He is apparently unaware of his lack of hand, and as such, his capacity to comport les diamonds is significantly réduit. Gosh, that is a stroke of luck. Ah, uh, indeed, mon petit chouette, a stroke indeed. The diamonds <laughs> are safe, for now. But who knows how long it will be before the phantom limb strikes again. But thanks to this little rapprochement, one might say we are now armed with information to help us catch this phantom menace. Oh, oh. You might say he'll never escape the long arm of the law. Uh, that would be very insensitive, Inspector. I do not appreciate such exploitative humor. Now give me a hand and with these diamonds. But, <sighs> let's sigh. <laughs>